0: Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 8, Episode 14. This week marks the first real transition to the second volume of the podcast. For those of you finding this volume first, I highly encourage you to start with Volume 1, as all of the episodes progress sequentially. It will also make more sense why this one is Part 3 of 3 on the Judge Gideon. When you go back to the first volume, you'll find 300 episodes that walk through the history of the people, places, and things found in the first five-plus books of the Old Testament. As for this episode, and like I alluded to before, in the past two installments, I've covered the Judge Gideon as he was presented in the text of the Book of Judges, all setting the stage for this episode, the deeper dive into what's known about him. And with that, let's get started. Most of what we know about Gideon is sourced either directly or indirectly from the biblical text. First off, his name. Obviously, Gideon was alternatively presented in the text as Jerobel. A few places give the alternate name of JerubbaShab. As for this latter name, the Beshef suffix translates to shame, all thought to be an editorialization of Baal. The same suffix is seen later in the Old Testament as a name for Saul's son and grandson, Meshibosheth. Archaeologists in southern Israel have uncovered a 3,100-year-old fragment of a pottery jug with five ink-written letters that appear to represent the name Jerobel, or perhaps Yerobel. The dating of this would likely place the jug within a century or two after Gideon walked in the area. What I was unable to find was how common the name was at the time. I've mentioned before that his alternate name, Jerebel, meaning, "Bell will contend, or perhaps let Bell plead with him. And even this translation isn't without detractors as some researchers have pointed out that what this may really mean is let Baal be great. There is a similar translation to Baal strives. These particular translations go against the theme of that specific part of the text, just after Gideon knocked down the Canaanite deity's altar, which the same researcher points out that the translation, therefore, is likely a mistake of a scribe or some other historical inaccuracy or that it was originally positive towards Baal, then through later writing and translation, took on the meaning found in the text. Others have proposed that his original name, Gideon, may translate to either hewer or driver. There are also proposals about why he would have two different names altogether. And that's that the use of both Gideon and Jerobel may reflect two originally independent sets of stories that were later combined by an editor who intended to combine the characters into a single person Gideon was the son of Joash from the Abizorite family in the tribe of Manasseh making his home in Ophrah which is sometimes alternatively given as Ephra you should know by now that his greatest accomplishment was leading 300 warriors from various tribes over the assembled Midianites and others after nearly a decade of oppression. Backing up a bit, before Gideon was the judge Deborah, who, along with Barak, led the Israelites to victory over their enemies. After this, and while Deborah was still judging, the Israelites lived in peace for some 40 years, but they did what they were really good at doing and turned away from God. Then, along came the Midianites, Amalekites, and the people from the east. As for this last group, the common suggestion is that they were nomadic Bedouins. All three of these groups would harass the Israelites for seven years, showing up, taking what they wanted, and leaving behind a path of destruction. There's more to this harassment than what's found in the book of Judges. One researcher, Louis Ginsberg, proposed that after Deborah led the Israelites to victory over Sisera, all of Israel sang a hymn of praise, the aptly named Song of Deborah. They sang it as praise to God, who rewarded their pious sentiments, pardoning the prior transgressions of the people. But, after 40 years, they slipped back into their old ways, with their former troubles resurfacing to harass them yet again. All of this really isn't a surprise, but what Ginsburg next proposed was from outside of the biblical narrative. Ginsburg posited that their backsliding was due to the witchcraft of a Midianite priest named A U D. This sorcerer allegedly made the sun shine at midnight, or at least convinced enough Israelites that he had. In so doing, the Israelites were led to believe that the idols of Midian were mightier than God, and God punished them for this thought by giving them into the hands of the Midianites. They then worshipped their own images reflected in the water and were stricken with dire poverty. They could not bring so much as a meal offering, which was considered the offering of the poor. Then, on the of one Passover, Gideon spoke a complaint. Where are all the wondrous works which God did for our fathers in this night, when he slew the firstborn of the Egyptians, and Israel went forth from slavery with joyous hearts? It was at that moment that God appeared to him and said, Thou who art courageous enough to champion Israel, thou art worthy that Israel shall be saved for thy sake. It was at this point that Ginsburg's interpretation moves back to parallel that in the biblical text. God had chosen Gideon as the people's next deliverer to free the people of Israel and to condemn their idolatry. The angel of the Lord, or as presented in some translations, the Lord's angelic messenger, appeared in the character of a traveler who sat down in the shade of a terribaneth tree to rest, and enjoy a refreshment. When he did this, he conversed with Gideon. Many researchers and scholars point out how this conversation parallels that between Abraham and his visitors in the terebinth trees at Mamre, where Abraham was promised he and Sarah would have a son, despite their advancing years, as found in Genesis 18. Back in Judges, well, really in Ginsburg's interpretation, Gideon asked for proof of God's will by three miracles. The first was a sign from the angel of the Lord, in which the angel appeared to Gideon and caused fire to shoot up out of a rock, roughly similar to the text in Judges 6, 11-22. Then the two signs of the fleece. One morning the fleece was wet when everything around it was dry and the next morning, the reverse. With these confirmations, Gideon sent messengers to gather fighting men from the tribes of Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, as well as his own tribe of Manasseh. They, of course, were destined to form up against the Midianites, among others. Ginsburg adds a few more details, writing that the assembled Midianites and Amalekites crossed the Jordan River then encamped at the well of Herod, which was located in the Jezreel Valley. Ginsberg then walks through essentially the same sorting mechanism that's found in the text, and for the same reasons. God wanted to reduce the number of Israelite warriors so that they would know the reason for their victory, God's intervention. And the manner in which the numbers were reduced was the same, too. Those afraid were sent home. Those who drank water with their hands went home, leaving only fearless, water-lapping troops, 300 in total. As you should be noticing, where the text of Judges was very descriptive, Ginsburg let the narrative do the telling, but where the details were lacking, he filled in the blanks, meaning this part of the story is essentially the same as that found in Judges. Gideon needs reassurance which he finds by overhearing Midianite soldiers. He then instructs his troops, just as found in the text, with the clarifying detail that they lit their torches after blowing their trumpets and shouting a battle cry. All of this to give the impression of a much larger attack force, and send the enemy into a panic, then unorganized retreat. At this point, Ginsburg's telling again parallels the Old Testament text up until Gideon executes two Midianite kings himself, after his son Jether was too afraid to do so. The place where all of this went down was known as the Rock of Oreb, named after one of the fleeing Midianites. It's speculated that this is the same place as Orbo, found east of the Jordan and near Bethsheen. As for another named Midianite leader, Zeb was executed at a place named the winepress of Zeb. And that's where I'll leave Ginsburg, at least for now, and continue pressing forward. After this unexpected victory, the Israelites asked Gideon to become their king and establish a dynasty. Of course, he refused. Some scholars have compared this part of the narrative to the earlier anger of the Ephraimites, and concluded that this indicates those two parts are from different sources, which is a possibility. Another possibility is that the people of that time, well, really all time, are never perfectly rational. After this, Gideon asks for a collection, and receives a vast amount of gold, from which he makes an ephod. Which gets me back to Ginsberg's writings, He expanded on the few verses about the ephod, positing that Gideon fashioned it such that the ephod bore the name of Manasseh. This was different than the earlier one made during the Moses-led desert wanderings, which was said to have been Joseph represented by Ephraim alone, leaving Manasseh out. This ephod was said to be the balance to the earlier one, which also helps to explain some of the tension between Ephraim and Manasseh, Gideon's tribe, that continued through that day. Gideon would consecrate his ephod to God. It was only after his death that it was treated as an idol. It would come to pass that the Israelites would revert to worshiping the Canaanite deity Beelzebub, so much so that they carried small idols of him in their pockets. As if that wasn't bad enough, they would regularly pull the idol from their pocket and kiss it fervently. There's also the possibility that many of these idols were forged from the same gold won by Gideon from the Midianites. This, along with other abhorrent actions, would eventually anger God. At about the same time, the Israelites turned from Gideon, And sometime around then, after ruling as a judge for forty years in the accompanying peace, Gideon would die and be buried in the tomb of his father Joash at Ophrah. Before that, Gideon had many wives who bore him some seventy sons. In addition to this, he kept a concubine, a woman from Shechem, who bore him a son named Abimelech, which translates to, my father is king. Surely an attempt by his mother, or perhaps others, to remove any doubt concerning paternity. Fast forward to the New Testament, where Gideon merited a mention in the book of Hebrews. There, the author recounts the faith of several Old Testament characters, writing, By faith the people passed through the Red Sea, as if it were dry land, but when the Egyptians attempted to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell, after they had been circled for seven days. By faith, Rahab did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had received the spies in peace. And what more should I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, Shut the mouths of lions, quenched raging fire, escaped the edge of the sword, won strength out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Outside of the text, and in the Eastern Catholic, the Latin Rite Catholic, in an Ethiopian Orthodox church, in all three of these, Gideon is considered a saint. His example would also be used by Protestants during the Reformation against Catholic clergy. 16th century Swiss German writer Hans von Root compared the removal of saints' relics from Catholic churches to Gideon's destruction of Bell's altar. Finally, there is a modern American organization known as the Gideon's International Devoted to Christian Evangelism. This group is most well-known for the free distribution of Bibles, traditionally found in hotel desks and dressers. The organization's logo represents a two-handled pitcher and torch, symbolizing the tools used by Gideon in his 300 to send panic through the Midianite army. And that's it for Gideon. I'll get to Abimelech when I circle back, which provides me with a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week, when I'll press forward with the judges found in the text, beginning with Tola, found in chapter 10. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes, This is especially important in this new volume. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.